Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get into things today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what I've learned uh, for interviewing. And so this is something that I studied quite a bit before I began doing this podcast. I'd look at different people whose podcasts and other you know interviewing styles I really appreciate and sort of distill uh, whatever I can from uh, either what they've said about how they interview and uh, what I've observed in their interviews. And so I want to talk uh, just a little bit about how I approach that and what I've learned in, from studying them and from my own experience. And so the, the number one thing is that there, is, there are two very simple rules that I think if you follow those, that gets you 90% of the way there. And rule number one is find interesting people. Rule number two is shut the hell up and let them talk. Right, and I think those are pretty self-explanatory. In that, uh, this podcast is only going to be as interesting as the people who I bring on it. Right, I am not bringing the interesting content; it is clearly them. And so, the extent to which I can get interesting people is the extent to which this is going to be worthwhile. And then, once they've agreed to be on, and once I have them talking, my job is to not get in their way. Right, and I think uh, some people approach these sort of things as a conversation. And that's fine, but I don't. I consider them to be very strictly interviews because uh, of this notion that what is going to be interesting is whatever they have to say, and whatever I have to say is going to be significantly less interesting. Uh, and it's just about getting to the bottom of their experiences and their thoughts on everything. And so uh, by finding interesting people and shutting the hell up while they're talking, uh, I think that that covers the majority of what makes a uh, decent interview. Um, but of course, there's a lot of more nuanced stuff. And um, so to talk to talk about that a little bit, the, the first thing that I think is worth noting as a sort of overall idea is that there are two general things that make for a compelling interview, at least in this format. And those two things are stories and emotional responses. So basically what you want is for people to say, this is what happened and this is how I felt about it. And now, of course, this is notable because this is the exact opposite of what you usually get from academics, right? Very dry, very abstracted, very uh, clinical and technical. Uh, and what is going to be interesting when you're hearing someone in this format is to them for them to speak to their more personal uh, experiences, right? Which is what's the tagline of the show so, uh, tries to get at. And so, um, yeah, this, this can sometimes be difficult and there are certainly things that you can do to sort of frame things in a way that uh, elicit personal anecdotes and emotional responses. And of course, it's not something always that comes off perfectly, but the general idea is that you want people to start off with some more personal stuff and then get into the technical content later, once you are already invested in who that person is and uh, what you know of their story, right? So once you have that initial investment, once you uh, have sort of become enamored of them, then you're willing to sift through uh, the nitty gritty of whatever uh, technical argument they would like to advance. Uh, so it doesn't always play out exactly like that, but that's the general idea. And so, for example, I start my interviews um, often with this question of, of, of give me a picture of what your average day looks like, right? And so this would be as opposed to asking the question of what do you do, 
right? And, and so this serves two functions. One is that it orients people towards describing what they do concretely, instead of saying, oh, I'm a professor of such and such, which, you know, who knows exactly what that entails. They actually break down how they spend their time. And then the second thing is that this then allows me to dive into certain aspects of that. For example, I'm really interested in people's productivity routines and their writing habits. So I want to know exactly what that looks like for people. And so when they say, okay, yeah, I start my day with two hours of dedicated writing, then we can go in and we can break down exactly what that looks like for them. But uh, the point is that there are certain subtle things that you can do to frame a question in a way that will elicit a story rather than uh, some sort of abstracted analysis. And um, for most of these interviews, I usually only get through five or six preset questions because when you open up one of them, you have to follow up on whatever the person says, right? And if you take that seriously, it is going to take quite a bit of time, depending on what the topic is, you know, dive into it for 10 minutes or so. And um, so I have a couple preset questions that I ask everyone, such as about their daily routine, but then I also will have specific questions for individuals based off of their experience or something uh, unique about that. And um, another thing is that there are certain things that we do sort of subconsciously in conversation. Like when someone else is talking and you are paying attention to what they're saying, we tend to go like, yeah, mm-hmm, yep. And just sort of move along uh, in the conversation with them and sort of affirm that we're listening and paying attention. And that doesn't come off very well in a recorded interview. If you listen to people who are going along and saying, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I get it the whole time. It doesn't add anything to it. In fact, it can be quite distracting. And so um, this, uh, of course, goes back to the shut the hell up rule. But uh, it's almost always to, uh, better to sit there quietly and not make any noise while someone is going into a rather lengthy exposition of whatever they're talking about. And um, another thing is, is that um, it's good to have a few follow-up questions that are sort of, uh, you know, boxed and can be presented in, in more or less any uh, context. And so there are a couple good general ones which are, are quite broadly useful. The first one is, is one that I stole from Ira Glass, and that is, how did that turn out differently than you thought? Which is nice because it gives you both a story and a theory. They say, this is what happened, uh, here's what I thought was going to happen, and here's what I learned from it. Right, and um, so that's that's something that if, even if it's not in that specific, uh, you know, sort of phrase, trying to elicit that uh, kind of pattern about what people thought is is often a useful direction to take after you hear an initial story. Another one that I rely on sometimes uh, too heavily is what do you make of that? And so often when people are telling you about something, they'll just hit the plot points, but they don't always go into the deeper implications. And so that's a very broad way of asking someone to essentially just say more words on a given topic. And you know, usually the, the most interesting stuff comes from the follow-up, uh, from looking at something at one level more closely than you initially would, right? So it's really important to unearth that next layer to really unpack what's interesting in a given uh, story and, and in perspective. And uh, another practice that I, I was uh, sort of tested uh, about and been kind of surprised to see how well it works is that um, 
when I first connect with people on the podcast, usually the recording session is the first time we've ever talked live. And so it's important to do some rapport building very quickly before the interview gets going, just to sort of align your energy and, and get on the same page. And so what I find is the most useful topic to build this rapport is actually talking about the weather. So I'll spend three minutes or so simply talking about the atmospheric conditions of wherever they are, wherever I am, anywhere they've been previously, like where they're from, places we've both been. And uh, what this comes down to is at the end of the day, the thing that all humans have in common more than anything else is that almost every moment of our lives is inextricably connected to this publicly observable phenomenon that we call weather. Right, And so it really is guaranteed to be a common point of connection that will matter to both you and whoever you're talking to. Anyway, these have been some of my best practices um, that I've gotten from studying interviews that I admire and from my, my own experiences so far. Of course, I'm always trying to improve and, and certainly there's many ways in which I can. And so having shared all of that, if you have any feedback on ways that I can improve, I would really love to hear it. Um, you know, if there's anything that I do that's annoying, it would be awesome to know that so I can stop doing it. Sometimes uh, I find everything that I do uh, a little bit annoying, so it can be difficult to tell what wh what is just you overreacting to your own voice and statement and content and that sort of stuff. And, you know, if there are any questions that you really find interesting and, and want to hear more of uh, or, or, you know, questions you'd like to suggest, you can email me at cody.commers.writing at gmail.com. Uh, I'd really love to hear from you. So uh, let's get on to today's guest. She is a professor of quantitative social psychology at Durham University. She is the um, co-host of the Cyphalopod podcast, along with Bo Weingard. And you can follow her on Twitter at I'm Hardcorey, which I think speaks for itself as far as Twitter handles go. Uh, she frequently publishes essays and other cool content, and uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing our conversation. So here is Corey J. Clark. So Corey, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I'm looking forward to our chat, and uh, I'd like to start off by getting straight on something. Okay. It, uh, <laughs> It recently came to my attention that you were a contestant on The Price is Right, <laughs> and, and a successful one at that. So so how did that come about, and was that something that you aspired towards and achieved, or did that just sort of happen? It's actually a, sort of a sad story because my, so my friend Sean from grad school, he was one of my lab mates. Um, so Pete Ditto was my advisor, and he was one year below me. And it was his lifelong dream <laughs> to go on The Price is Right. Um, and so I think every year he was there, he went to the show to try to get on. Um, and I went with him twice, so that was my second time I had gone. Uh, and the first time, none of us got on. And then the second time, I was selected to go on instead of him. <laughs> So uh, I basically got to live out his his lifelong dream. Has um, he forgiven you for that yet? I think he has. Yeah, he still <laughs> because because I got on, they scanned over to like that like the group I was with, and so he still made it on screen. So he was technically on the prices right. He just wasn't a contestant. <laughs> and uh, you won a kayak, yeah? I did. I won a kayak, yeah. And then I got robbed in the 
and the wheel spinning thing because I got 85, which is a really good spin. And then the next person went over and then the third person had to spin it three times to tie me. And it seems like I should have just won. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I did. I did win a kayak, but I tanked my uh, my actual game because um, it was I had to put in order a washer dryer combo, like a Marc Jacobs purse and necklace and a keyboard. And I just had to put them in order from like cheapest to most expensive. And you'd think that would be pretty easy, but I've I've had like 60 people play this game and only one person got it right so far. <laughs> That's so funny. It was a very expensive keyboard. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> um... So there was an, another thing that I was reading through on your website, and that's that you have a very informative bio on there. <laughs> and uh, I suppose I'd like to use that as a jumping off point here. So let's go and start at the beginning. When did you first discover that you had an abiding love of Snoop Doggy Dog? <laughs> um, probably it wasn't until high school, and really it was that they were coming, there was going to be a, a concert in town, and I was, uh, like, I, I had been a gymnast, so I could do lots of cool tricks, which got me into, like, I was sort of into, like, break dancing, and I was a cheerleader, and so it, I got this idea that they were holding auditions for a back da- backup dancer, um, and I assume they probably want girls who could do flips and stuff, <laughs> so uh, I went to audition, and they ended up having to cancel it because... Um, because we got a bad snowstorm and Snoop Dogg couldn't come into town. <laughs> <laughs> That's tragic. Think about think about how life could have played out for you if you'd had that opportunity. Been. Oh my god. Oh, wow. Well, I'm I'm a little bit sad that that didn't get to play out, but I'm also thankful that you're here today. And that yeah. You, uh, had had I had a professional life as a backup dancer, I probably wouldn't be here. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so then in your bio next after the list, after, after Snoop was, uh, Bertrand Russell, <laughs> yeah. right? A contemporary of, uh, Snoop Dogg's. <laughs> and I, uh, imagine that was a relatively smooth transition between those. But when, so I guess, when did you get interested in Russell's work and then philosophy, which I kind of understand is kind of your gateway, uh, to, to this whole world. Uh, yeah. The gateway drug. Yeah, that's probably true. So my senior year of high school, I took classes at a local university um, and I took a philosophy class there and my my professor was super cool her name was Priscilla Saquiles and she had this like red curly crazy hair and she had an eye patch (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, and I think she must have assigned uh, some of Bertrand Russell's work and I thought it was so funny and I hadn't really been exposed to philosophy until that point um, so I would just like my girlfriend and I would just read it at lunch um, in the cafeteria <laughs> and uh, I think I think that's when at, up to that point I hadn't given a whole lot of thought to like what I would want to do um, as an adult I said I wanted to be an astronaut a very uh, realistic goal <laughs> um, so that that's when I started to think, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll major in philosophy, and that I ended up sort of doing it more as a hobby because my mom told me, if you go into philosophy, the only job you can do is to be a, a college professor, and you don't want to do that. God forbid you end up as a college professor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's what ended up happening anyway. But but yeah, that's why. So I, I I wanted to go into philosophy, and then I sort of ended up in psychology instead. 
So do you remember what struck you about those initial works? Was there some take that he had on the way the world worked that you're like, wow, damn, that really, that has, that has an edge to it? Um, I think so. So I was raised Catholic, um, and my, my, my immediate family isn't particularly Catholic, but my surrounding family is very, very Catholic. Um, and so I think that philosophy class I had taken and then some of the things we're reading, it was really the first time that had been challenged. And I wasn't like, I, I, I don't think I was necessarily like a strong religious believer at any point in my life. And I don't think at that point I really, if you would have asked me if I believe in God, I probably would have just said, I don't know, didn't really think about it. Um, but I think I kind of found those discussions we had sort of eye-opening and be like, oh, there are other people who don't think these things and and they're really, really smart people. <laughs> and uh, I think really it was just the wit that made me like Bertrand Russell <laughs> so much. Um, a lot of people have written compelling things on religion, but uh, I think I just thought he was funny. <laughs> have you ever encountered uh, Logic Comics, the Bertrand Russell comic book? No. <laughs> oh, this is logic this, comics. Oh my god, this is one of the most amazing things that I have. The most. Are one you of about the most, to change my life here? Oh my, you have no idea. I'm gonna write uh, it down. But it is, it is one of the most incredible pieces of art that I've ever engaged with, and it's this comic book rendering by these, you know, mathematicians slash artists about uh, Bertrand Russell and his sort of like intellectual development and that sort of stuff. And it has the perfect combination of, you know, that engagement from being a, you know, sort of comic book format to uh, being, again, really clever, sort of like what you're saying with that same kind of wit. And then mm -hmm. also really seriously engaging with the, the history and uh, ideas in a more or less completely nonfiction way. And uh, for any Bertrand Russell fan, it's oh, it's a must. And you can you can bust through it in three hours, so it's it's a it's a worthwhile. I will definitely check it out. I've been thinking for a long time someone needs to make like a comedy about Nietzsche. Like there should be a movie, um, or maybe a comic book would work too. But it sounds like maybe a similar idea. Uh, a lot of philosophers don't get credit for being as funny as some of them were. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> And then, so, how did you go from that initial sort of spark of, like, okay, there's stuff about the world that I haven't thought about, and I'm interested in it, and I'm interested in what smart people's takes on it are, mm -hmm. to sort of getting into psychology proper? Was that a straight line for you as, as you transitioned into college? What did that look like? Um, so... So my, my transition to psychology, I think I can actually pinpoint to like a particular event. So I, um, I, th I think it was actually a physics major at the time. I, I, I started majoring in philosophy and then I changed it to physics and then I switched it to psychology all by the end of my first year. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it was Emily Balchettis, she's a professor at NYU now. Um, she came into my social psychology class, I think, on the first day, and she had just started uh, at Ohio U, which is where I was. Um, and she came into my social psychology class and was trying to recruit research assistants. And she, like, was saying she wanted someone to help her, like, freak people out with tarantulas. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, so I sent her an email, and she uh, selected me to be her RA. And I started working with her, and I just had a lot of fun um, helping her with Did you successfully freak people out with tarantulas? 
I did successfully freak people out, yeah. And actually we didn't even use, so she bought a tarantula to run this study. And then one day she like was looking at the cage and she's like, oh my gosh, there are two of them. But actually, apparently tarantulas like shed their outer shell, like a snake, <laughs> but they still look like a tarantula. So, that is so sketchy. Yeah, isn't that weird? I Like that is something I did not know. But anyway, like it ends up looking like just like another tarantula. So she was able to keep the actual tarantula, I think, at home. And then we just used the shell of the tarantula in the lab and people were still pretty freaked out by it. Um, but I just had fun with her like designing studies and running studies. And I also thought like her life was very cool. I was like, I didn't know that being a professor could be so much fun. You get to like run these things in the lab and lie to people and see what they do. <laughs> um, and so, and then she was the one who basically inspired me to go into social psychology. And she told me like, apply to work with Pete Ditto and basically all of her advice in those uh, couple of years, I think is what sort of pushed me down the, the path that I ended up going down, which is, I guess I'm forever thankful for her, to her for that because um, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, so uh, was there anything in particular, do you remember like a moment where uh, you were like, wow, what she has to say and, and this, this sort of subject content here, is it sort of clicked for you? Um, that's a good question. I'm I'm really not sure. It was probably a slow process. I, I ended up, I think because she was new and she didn't have a grad student at least the first time the first year that I was working with her. So I think she kind of treated me like a grad student, which was a lot of fun. And I didn't realize how busy professors were. So I think I dropped by her office just to chat like almost every single day. <laughs> and she let me do that. <laughs> like I'd go to get the keys to the lab and pass her office and I'd chat with her and then I'd drop them off. I'd pass her office and I'd come in and talk to her for like an hour. And she, uh, looking back, she must have been pretty stressed out by it, but she let me do it. Um, and so I think it was just maybe as one of those situations where I was observing my behavior and realizing like this was, you know, I was having a lot of fun. I was really enjoying talking to her. And um, yeah. So from that, did you, uh, when did it become clear that you wanted to do something like the grad school route? Or was there other things besides being an astronaut that you were still <laughs> considering at the time? Um, so the grad school, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't really know. So I think um, I had an academic advisor and I was told I should go into clinical psychology because that guy said like, that's where all the good jobs are. And uh, Emily ended up kind of, I guess she must have recommended to the university that she be my academic advisor instead. Um, and I told her what this guy said and she's like, oh, you, why would you go into clinical? You seem to really like social. And I was like, yeah, I do really like social. Um, and I think that was pretty much it. But also my dad, my dad has a PhD in school psychology, and he similarly had concerns about like, what jobs can you do uh, with a PhD in social psychology, which is fair enough. It, it, people have a hard time on the job market after they get PhDs in social psychology. Um, so he made me apply to school psychology programs in addition to social psychology programs. And I ended up getting more interviews for school psychology programs, but I went on the first one and I like couldn't even fake it. <laughs> like I could not even pretend to be interested in the questions like that they were asking me in interviews. And so I just ended up bailing on my other interviews. Um, 
and thankfully I got into UC Irvine. Um, had I not, I probably would have just taken another year because I did my undergrad in three years uh, instead of four. Um, so I probably could have just taken another year and I don't know, taken more philosophy classes probably. Um, but it was kind of one of those things where things just kind of fell into place in a particular way. Um, and I just did whatever opportunities came to me or the ones that I took and that's what I ended up doing. And it just, you know, worked out in the long run, thankfully. So you ended up at UC Irvine, which was a good fit for your general sort of interest, at least in terms of doing a social psychology program. Then was there, did you sort of go through, what was the adjustment period to sort of home in on more precisely what you were interested in and, and, and what did that look like for you? Yeah, so grad school, when I started, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I was interested in. Uh, I liked what I was working on with Emily. We were doing like motivated perception stuff, but that wasn't necessarily my specific interest. And then Pete was like a moral psychology and a political psychology guy. Um, and I wasn't sure I was interested, especially in the political side. Um, and I started working, he basically gave me an old project that one of his older grad students had dropped, which was this study looking at how pictures influence people's moral judgments. Um, so I started working on this project and it was, I ran, I don't even know, it had to have been at least dozens of studies over the course of my first three years of grad school. And it was one of those things where, you know, it was almost like a tease, <laughs> like you get a study that works the way you expected, and then I'd get four more that didn't, and then I'd get one that worked the way I expected, and then four more that didn't. And I didn't, I didn't know, I guess, when to call it good <laughs> and stop uh, chasing the idea around. Um, so basically, I spent my first few years I didn't accomplish anything. I didn't publish any papers. I didn't have anything even that could potentially be publishable. Um, and it wasn't until I started working on the free will stuff, which is probably how I ended up getting into the free will stuff because it was like the first thing that just consistently worked for me um, that I really started to feel like, okay, now I feel like I'm doing something um, that I understand and things started working from there. So I didn't get involved. I started looking at free will sort of randomly. I think I was taking a stats class and I had this these data uh, with a free will scale. Um, and I started thinking about how that relates to punishment and started working on, you know, is can free will beliefs be motivated by desires to punish? I started running all these studies and everything just worked, 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 worked. And then I dropped everything else that I had been working on for the first three years, which were these picture studies. And then I had like priming studies. I was doing like disgust primes and religion primes and nothing was working. Um, and once I got this project and things finally started falling into place for me. I think that's why I just ran that direction and dropped everything else behind. Um, and then I, that was kind of the focus of a lot of my work for uh, maybe like, yeah, five, five years after that. Was there a time sort of towards the end of that three years before you started to get traction where it crossed your mind like, wow, maybe uh, I'm just not going to be able to do this? Did that oh, yeah. sort of did that come into your mind, and then how did you how did you address that? How did you deal with it? 
Yeah, that definitely crossed my mind. I th One thing that I really liked about UC Irvine is I feel like they were pretty honest with us about you really have to publish. If you don't publish, you're not going to get an academic job. Most of you are not getting academic jobs. I know all of you want them, but most of you probably aren't going to get them. And I think, um, I think actually a lot of us did end up getting academic jobs, but they were pretty honest with us about how hard it is. Um, and so I didn't end up publishing anything until my last year of grad school. And so going into my last year, I knew like I did not have a chance at getting, I definitely didn't have a chance of getting like an assistant professor job, which is what I wanted to do. And I was kind of aware like other options are to try to get, you know, a lecturer position or, you know, I could teach at a community college or something. but. I really didn't want to do that um, because the whole reason I went to grad school was because I was interested in the research side. If I had wanted to be just a teacher or mainly focusing on teaching, then there are other ways I could have done that. Um, so yeah, I think I was getting pretty nervous there, pretty stressed, let's say, <laughs> um, in the final years of grad school where you know my CV was pretty pathetic looking. Um, and I ended up just, I, th I was trying to entertain lots of possibilities. I really, really wanted to stay in academia. I didn't know if it would be possible. Um, and I was trying to look at different possibilities. Okay, could I apply for a grant so I could get funding for my own postdoc? And I applied for a handful of postdocs. Um, and I ended up getting a postdoc. That's what ended up working out for me. But it it, it could have not. And so I, I think about that a lot. Like, had I not gotten the postdoc that I did at that time, what would have happened instead? Um, and I don't, I honestly don't know. I was still, I was still looking for opportunities. Um, Maybe Snoop Dogg would have come back into town. <laughs> right? I think my skills had declined at that point. Snoop Dogg might not have wanted me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was actually, that's kind never, of funny because I did, never. <laughs> I did, um, my, I think it was my, was it my last year of grad school or my second to last year of grad school? Um, for whatever reason, there were like quite a few, uh, girls in my program who were like pretty professional dancers. Like one of them was on the dance team at UC Santa Barbara. Another one was a ballerina. And then there was a girl uh, a couple years below me. I forget what what her story was but we were going to try out for the laker girls <laughs> and i forget why we ended up not being able to go but like i was very seriously considering trying to be a laker girl <laughs> i probably wouldn't have made it because i'm not good at like the you know the fuetes or whatever you have to do but <laughs> i have a feeling you guys would have like collectively brought the squad's iq up like by like 20 hey i resent that. that dancers are smart <laughs> Um, so let's see, um, so yeah, getting this postdoc was, was one of those things that if it didn't happen, um, who knows, uh, how things would have ended up and, and where they would have gone from there. Mm -hmm. Were there other moments like that, that it's like, wow, if I didn't have that, um, just sort of magical moment of randomness or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Were there were there other um, moments like that or events like that, that that you feel really impacted your trajectory? Only every two years of my recent life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So th- the thing is, you stop looking once the thing happens. So it's hard to know, like what what the alternative realities would be. But really, like, so I got that postdoc. And I think I recall that year, I did end up getting an interview for another one later on that I turned down because I'd already accepted this one. So maybe I would have gotten that one, but maybe not, you know, who knows how many people she was interviewing. Um, and then I was doing, this postdoc was at University of Buffalo, and I had a similar thing, like I was running a lot of, so I'd been doing, these free will studies for a while and they were always working. And then I moved to Buffalo and we started to work on all these new projects and then things weren't working again. Um, and so, yeah, like go through another period of dread. Like I have these ideas. I'm like, this certainly must be true. Why, like, why doesn't it appear to be working in the lab? Am I screwing something up? Is the idea wrong? Um, and I don't remember what I looked like in terms of my CV at that point, but I think I recall in my last year, so my postdoc was two years, um, I think I recall I must have applied for some academic jobs that year and didn't get any of them. And then um, my second postdoc, so I think I'm the first social psychologist ever to do two postdocs. (laughs) Uh, My second postdoc basically happened... um, because I had already been working with Roy Baumeister a little bit, and he was approached by the Charles Koch Foundation, and they were like, hey, do you want money? Maybe you could get a postdoc or something. <laughs> and he was like, all right. And so he like called me and was like, hey, do you want to do a postdoc with me? And I was like, sure. <laughs> um, so we wrote an application um, I think they were interested in him because of the free will thing. I think they like the word free. They like freedom. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so we wrote, you know, I think like a two-page proposal for this project. Um, we used the word free, I think. <laughs> and uh, we ended up getting that funding for my, my second postdoc. I think if um, you look at, I don't know how much the, the grant was for, but if you look at the amount of money that you obtained per word there, that's, you know, one of the highest <laughs> Pretty grossing, good, right? Yeah, per <laughs> word. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's probably right. I haven't thought of that like that. But yeah, so that... that um, <laughs> like, you'll never write another essay. And no, it's just, that, no that one will ever pay me you, that much exactly. for a two-page, for a two-page half-thought-out proposal. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, and that's a similar thing, like, so once that was set, then I stopped looking for other things, but I didn't have anything else, I didn't have a backup plan, so if that wouldn't have worked out, I would have had to have, I would have applied for all kinds of jobs, and who knows what would have ended up happening. Um, And then same thing here, so my, when I got this job, I applied, so that year I hit the job market hard, I think for the first time ever. I think I applied for like 30, maybe 35 jobs. And I did pretty well on the market in the sense that I got a lot of interviews, but two places I was their second choice. One place canceled their search. One place said that they would not hire me even if the first person (laughs) turned it down. And then one of them I ended up turning down the interview because I had accepted this one. But this was the only job offer that I got by the time that I got this job offer. And had I not gotten this one, there's no guarantee I would have gotten another one. And again, <laughs> no idea what I'd be doing right now. So it, 
every single step along the way, every couple of years, you know, I didn't, I, I was never like entertaining, like I wasn't, like job offers were not raining down on me. And, and I think this is pretty true of, at least of most people I know um, who are in academia now, people around my age, who in my cohort or a couple years above me or below me, most people aren't entertaining multiple job offers. I think that's probably the minority of people. And you're pretty lucky if you get one <laughs> and then you take it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, like really every couple of years is these things that happened. And if they hadn't happened, then, you know, I'd be knocking on Snoop's door or calling up the Laker girls. I'm getting a little old for the Laker girls now. I don't know. <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, so, it can be pretty stressful. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess I'm interested in what your current feeling on that is uh, now, right? So what is what is how's, how have you experienced the shift from being a postdoc to a faculty? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like going from sort of like postdoc purgatory to now you have <laughs> a more stable job, um, at least on paper. And I'm wondering if is that yeah. your perception of it that there's this big shift, or does it feel a little bit more graded, like it's slowly gaining more stability and traction? Um, what, yeah, what what do you make of all that right now, at the personal level? Yeah, I will say the job security is really nice because ha being in the position to have to get a new job or you're done is a really, really stressful place to be in. And, uh, you know, like I go through periods and I, I, the way my body handles stress is it just like stops sleeping. It's just like, we're not sleeping anymore. <laughs> so you go through like three months of no sleep and it's really, that'll, that'll mess you up. So, oh, that's terrible. Oh yeah. So, so. You start have, talking about your body as in like a, a group of people, like we're, we're doing this now. Yeah. That's how bad I, it it's gets. It's not just one, it's not one thing. It's a group of people yeah. and they, they voted. And, and they decided. all have their own <laughs> no individual problems that they need to deal with. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that aspect is nice. So Durham, and I'm not sure if this is true of Oxford as well, maybe you'll know, or if this is like a UK thing, but we don't have tenure in the sense that, you know, like you're basically on trial for five, six years, and then if you pass tenure, you're really secure, and if you don't, you're fired. Um, here, I have absolutely no fucking idea what the la know. like the academic ladder looks like here because it's in, in the U.S. It's very simple. It's like you know uh, assistants, and then uh, you go up from there. You get your tenure, that sort of stuff. It's clear like what the hierarchy is. There's all these different names here that they have for things, and I mm. have zero idea how it maps onto anything that I'm familiar with. Yeah, so we have some of that because there's. So there was like the older system, which is like lecturer, which is equivalent to assistant professor. And then there's like a reader, I think, which is like an associate professor. I'm gonna get these wrong. They're different names and Durham has changed. So they've switched to the US terminology. So I actually oh, am an assistant wow. professor, but people who were hired 10 years ago would have been hired as a lecturer, but they would have been assistant professor. So. It's confusing, but as, but anyway. as is the design for the British mind, <laughs> right? I think it's one of their true. desiderata in, in the whole system. They are a fan of complexity. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I have here is basically my first year I was on probation, and I haven't gotten the official letter yet saying that I've passed, but I'm told that I 
probably was going to pass and that most people pass and that I did all of the things I was supposed to do. Well, mazel um, tov. You, thank you. That's great. That's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, let's wait until I get the letter, but I think the letter will say that I passed. Perfect. Um, so, so I have job security in the sense that, like, unless I screw up, I'm, I probably have this job for, for good, which is really nice. It's nice to not have any pressure, to not have to constantly be figuring the next thing out. Um, and that is a relief. Uh, I think probably being an assistant professor in that sense is like slightly less like maybe like emotionally stressful because you're not like dreading your future <laughs> in the way you are as a postdoc. Being a postdoc is... I think probably one of the hardest stages for like your mental well-being of all of the academic stages. Oh, and granted, I haven't, you know, I haven't made it that far yet. But for me, anyway, that was that was hard. Um, but there, you don't realize how much more stuff professors are doing than grad students or postdocs are doing. There's a lot of like, you don't realize the admin responsibilities. You don't realize like how time consuming it is to mentor all of these student projects. And there's been a lot of uh, unexpected work to do. Um, Cause I thought, oh, it'll be just teaching and research. Like I can swing that, <laughs> but it's a lot more than that. Uh, so it's, I'm busier than I've ever been for sure. I'm, you know, working around the clock uh, and barely keeping up. So it's stressful in that way, but it's not like emotionally stressful. It's just like, just it's a demanding job yeah so one thing i want to talk about a little bit is that you have moved around a bunch speaking (laughs) of all this uh job insecurity and hopping around Uh, by my count there's ohio california florida buffalo and now the very very far north of england yeah um aka scotland i think (laughs) but um so what role has that played in your career, maybe even if your pers- your personal life, if you can speak to that? And, wh- and what are the trade-offs there? Because I imagine that there's positive things that, that, uh, that you appreciate about that and have helped define who you are, but uh, obviously it's going to exact some toll on you. So what, what, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, your, your description of that is pretty accurate. So the positives are that that well the positives are it's cool to live different places you get to know different parts of the country when i travel and i meet people in other countries or other parts of the united states i have something in common with you know a lot of people because i've lived a lot of places i've been a lot of places um and so i can relate to lots of different sort of especially in the u.s i suppose i can relate to lots of different cultures within the u.s um and What's cool is you pick up friends along the way. So every time you move somewhere, you meet new people, you make new friends, and that's kind of cool. You have friends all over the place. Um, And I've liked a lot of the places I lived. I mean, even um, Buffalo, when I first moved there, I was like, oh, Buffalo, this is going to be rough. But toward the end, like, I was really learning a lot of the cool things about the city that are unique to that city. And so I've... And like Tallahassee, for example, it was really, really, really hot. But I started working this organization there um, called Tallahassee Village Square, which was trying to get um, people to build relationships between different races, different ideologies, different religions, which is something that I find to be uh, really interesting and a challenge for people. So 
when you move these to all these new places, you get all these new opportunities and you learn all these new things. Um, the hard thing is that it can be really lonely because you're always moving somewhere and you don't have friends right away. Um, and being away from my family lives in Ohio. So it's, it's especially hard now living in the UK because getting to Akron, Ohio from Durham, England is hard. <laughs> it's actually yeah. even harder getting back because uh, I have to fly. I had to go Newcastle to London, London to some big airport in the US and then that <laughs> big airport to Akron. Yeah. Um, so it's not easy to do that. So, and I have, now I have four nieces and a nephew, and with the exception of my older brother who's in the military and he bounces around all over the place, um, the rest of my siblings all live close to each other um, and close to my parents, so they're hanging out all the time. Um, so being, being away from family uh, and being away from like a lot of my closest friends, that is... You know, it, it it's just kind of, I guess it's kind of depressing in some ways. Um, but have I gotten used to it? No, I don't know. I don't know if you get used to it. It's kind of just persistently sad. But I see them often enough. I probably travel back to Ohio a few times a year. And then because I have summers, my summers are pretty long. I can be around for a while. Um, and then the, the winter break is about a month. So I can be around for a while. But yeah, it's definitely a trade-off, and I could see why a lot of people wouldn't want to do it. Um, it's not—it's probably not great for families, and it, I'm sure it only gets even harder. Like if you have, like if you're married and you have a kid, and then figuring out how you're gonna move around with like a partner and a child—that would—that would make it ten times worse. So, um, yeah, trade-offs. <laughs> So there's something that's uh, tangentially related to this that's of interest to me, and um, it, so are there any key areas of your life where you consider yourself an outsider or feel like you've insinuated yourself in a place that you wouldn't be a natural candidate for? I'm thinking of this in a, in a, in a positive way as in a case where you bring like a unique set of knowledge or a background that gives you an edge in the way you think. Is there anything that you, you kind of feel like that applies to um, you and, and, and some, some aspect of your life? Um, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. Do you mean like, do you mean like in my, in professionally, is there something that I'm a part of? Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, so if you have uh, you know, like a PhD in social psychology and then you end up mm -hmm. as a quantitative social psychologist, like that sort of thing. Like that's something that you clearly, like there's a, a line between that. But I'm interested in the aspects of people's lives where you end up doing something where you kind of have a non-standard background mm. uh, in that aspect. Does that make any sense? I think so. So I think you can tell me if this is what you're thinking. So yeah. I've kind of ended up um I occasionally end up like talking to philosophers and I I was I was one, a keynote speaker actually at this experimental philosophy conference in Madrid last year which is really cool but I think I've gotten um a little bit more attention from the philosophy community um than I probably would have expected I think it's because 
I am a social scientist and I, you know, I know how to do statistics and I have data. And I think younger philosophers are doing that more and more. Younger philosophers are getting into like the social science side of things, but the older ones aren't so much. Um, and so some, and in fact, actually just, what was it, a week or two ago, I went to this talk in Newcastle, Greg Caruso was in town, um, and he had a debate with Christian List about whether free will is real. Um, and they asked me to like write a comment for the philosophy journal. Um, and like in some ways I'm a free will expert in the sense that I've done a lot of research on people's free will beliefs, but I'm also really not a free will expert in the way that philosophers are experts on free will, and they're used to making these philosophical arguments, and I'm not. And so that's been kind of interesting because I get asked to participate in these discussions, um, and I am not as familiar with um, all of the different theorists over all of the hundreds or even thousands of years who've discussed these problems. Um, and so there, yeah, I think I probably am a little bit of an outsider and I do have, I have some edge in that I know a lot of data that philosophers aren't aware of, but I'm also sort of clueless in that they're all on the same page <laughs> with what the discussions they've been having and all of the different, they have all these different definitions and terms for different kinds of free will and different kinds of determinism and I can barely keep up, or I can't keep up, I should say. Every time I have a conversation with a philosopher, they mention like a new definition of a type of determinism that I don't understand. <laughs> so. Um, so maybe, is that is that what you had in mind? That was a long way of answering your question, if not. <laughs> no, that's absolutely what I have in mind. I'm very fascinated with how when you bring a different knowledge set to a, to a particular stage, how that gives you an advantage, right? And that's yeah, clearly that's you, that you, you get here. to participate in conversations that you're barely qualified to participate in because you have something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk podcasts. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I have a podcast, you have a podcast, everyone's got a podcast. Yeah. Uh, as far as I can tell, you've been interviewed on many of them, especially ones mm -hmm. that are sort of focused on psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what's your take on the podcast landscape right now? I guess um, the, the common sentiment is that there are too many, but perhaps another mm -hmm. way to look at it is that one day everyone will do some version of it. It's just like, uh, you know, at... Um, at basically everyone does some version of writing essays and publishing. We don't think the fact that everyone writes essays, like, oh, everyone writes essays, right? So I'm right. wondering, do you, what, what's your take on the landscape right now? What do you, yeah, whatever, what do you make of that? That's an interesting perspective that, yeah, like everyone writes papers and we're not like, fewer people should write papers, so why should we have fewer people doing podcasts? Um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem. The, the thing with the podcast is that there are quite a few that I like, and I don't have time to listen to the new episodes of all of the ones that I like, so that's what's frustrating for me. Um, but I, I do, I like that, you know, different people, a lot of these podcasts, some of them are kind of doing the same sort of thing, and probably even what I'm doing is the same sort of thing. Uh, I actually really like your idea. I don't know of any that, that do quite what you do. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, I mean, what do I have to say about it? Like, I'm, my, my own podcast, I basically started to do, I don't think I really thought about it. I think it was kind of just like, 
I think I was just talking to Bo, and we're like, we should do a podcast. Okay, and then we did it. Um, but basically what we do is we just record conversations we probably would have had otherwise, so it's not very time-consuming. <laughs> Although we do have some guests coming up. Um, um, but, yeah, I don't know. Are there too many? There probably are, like, a lot out there that are not very good, but no one's going to listen to those, so I don't really know if that's a huge problem. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm a fan of them. I've, I've, I've found them useful. I like to, you know, post, post links to them. And then a lot of new people will reach out to me. And it's been, I think in terms of helping my career, both having a podcast and being on podcasts has definitely been, um, a positive thing. And it's, and I would say the same thing actually is true of Twitter. Like being on Twitter has probably not helped my career in the sense that I'm publishing more papers, but it helps your visibility so much. And I've been invited to write essays and give talks in places all over the world um, because people will email me like, oh, I just saw your tweet. Want to come here and give a talk? <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so these like new kinds of media, I think, are really helpful for just reaching more people in more ways um not everyone listens to podcasts not everyone does twitter so the more ways you're trying to reach out to people the more people are going to see you and um the more opportunities you're going to get yeah play play that out for me a little bit more with the podcast was there anything that maybe was unexpected or maybe you didn't ex like didn't know what to expect going in but what in what ways has it uh positively impacted you um do you mean my podcast or just in general you you starting this new um you know like be like hey i'm gonna do this and uh it's not necessarily part of being a professor it's not in your job description by any means right. um and so it's sort of taking an initiative to do something a little bit uh different even though there is sort of a common path for it but uh yeah how, how has that played out for you and maybe is there anything that uh you've been surprised at how um how much of a positive impact it's had yeah so i mean you know different different podcasts I've done have so some you know there there isn't even the opportunity for people to make comments on other ones there are like some of the ones I've done on YouTube you know you can see people talking about it um and I think the cool thing for me is that you get people who so like I know a lot of social psychologists I know most of the ones who study what I study uh at least you know the the slightly older ones um one thing that I think has surprised me with a podcast is you actually meet a lot of really smart, just like normal people who are interested in these kinds of things. And they actually have sort of like interesting insights and ideas. And then it's almost like kind of heartening to see how normal people are interested in, you know, being educated and learning um, uh, what what academics are up to. Um, and, you know, that you'll get a lot of views from people who are just doing this in their free time. You know, they could be watching, like, a crappy TV show or something, but instead they're watching a podcast. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. And I, I, I mean, I feel the same way about Twitter is, like, you meet 
you know, normal people who are really smart. And I'm actually working on a like a project right now with someone that I met on Twitter who's not even academic, <laughs> but he's like a really good scholar, even though he's not a professional academic. Um, so I think I think the sort of like being exposed to or I guess interacting with and having an opportunity to interact with people who aren't in academia, um, I didn't necessarily know to expect that. And um, it's been sort of, I guess, impressive from from my perspective how um, some people, you know, academia is almost just like a hobby for them. They're not getting paid for it. They just they just want to learn and and contribute ideas for for fun. <laughs> So one thing that I think that's interesting is that, so, um, for our generation of psychology researchers, depending on how you slice it, whatever generational lines you want to draw, but there's there's a big there's a big shift from previous generations, which is that I think we're the first one, uh, where really for for uh, from the beginning of careers, there's this idea that a psychologist can be an engaged public figure, right? Mm -hmm. And in this sort of post-Malcolm Gladwell world where psychology occupies a relatively prominent place in the public stage, and you know, the, there's this idea of an established psychologist as someone who writes books for a general audience, or has a podcast, or writes essays for Scientific American and The Atlantic and whatever. And so do you feel like that that sort of template for public-facing psychology, like you've talked about with Twitter and, 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 and podcasts, maybe stuff you want to do in the future in your career. Do you feel like that's played out in your own career, and have you seen that among your peers? Uh, how, how have you seen that influence things? Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely been interesting, and it's not... I didn't necessarily ever think that I would be this kind of psychologist. I think I only started actively Twittering, like... Oh, I don't know, not that long ago, maybe like a year and a half ago. Um, and most academics I know actually don't do this kind of stuff. They don't use Twitter and they don't really do podcasts. Um, and it is a different, I guess it's a different approach um, that I have found really useful. And I think it's getting more and more popular. I think a lot of academics these days actually now feel pressure to start using Twitter because it's such a useful way to get your data out and get your data not to the public, but even to academics because so many academics use Twitter. Like I, I learn about lots of new findings on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's kind of something you can opt into um, if that's something you want to do, it, it is interesting because you don't get paid for it. Like it comes out of your free time pretty much. Um, Which you have so people... much of nowadays. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I do actually sometimes I can I consider like Twitter to kind of be like half work. Like I'm like, well, you know, this isn't part of my job description, but it does help my career and it helps my university if people know who I am and people are t paying attention to my work. And I feel the same the same way about podcasts is like it helps me, it helps my university um, when I do these kinds of things, even though they, they aren't technically part of the job description. So um, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's been a good thing. I think it's well, it's hard to say like how much are how how much more are we reaching the public now? Are the public much more educated? Do they know like more about what's going on um, in like say modern social science 
um, because of Twitter, I I don't know. Like presumably this the same kinds of people who would have been engaged in another way are maybe now engaged on Twitter. Um, it would be interesting if we could have some kind of measure of that. What has been the like knowledge impact of Twitter? Has it been better or worse for people? Are they just getting a lot of bad information? Are they just seeing people fight a lot? Um, but but my, my general impression of the whole thing is pretty positive. Um, and I think it's been very useful for me. And I, I give this advice to young scholars is like, if you can put yourself out there in as many ways as possible and say yes to, you know, you know, go, going on podcasts, giving talks. Uh, if you get asked to give a public talk um, or being on Twitter, all of that just increases your visibility. And over time, it really helps build your sort of identity as a social scientist. Um, and then people pay more attention to your actual academic work, which is, I think, really what people want. Um, and I've, I've thought, like, I've been pondering writing a popular science book, but I got to find the time to do it. But I think that would be fun. Um, and that seems like a cool way to, again, engage public people and not just academics um, and get them to think about some of the things that you think are important. Do you have <laughs> any... some of the things that I think are important? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you have any people, psychologists or otherwise, who you look up to as writers or, um, you know, like something that what you would aspire to be or something like that? Oh, yeah, loads of people, but probably all for different reasons. Um, yeah, who is like one of my... I, yeah, I mean, I have a lot. So I... Yeah, I, I respect a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, so that's sort of hard. I'm trying to think if I have like a specific academic hero. Um I don't I don't know that I do. Um I'll uh I mean I, I guess it depends what domain we're talking about. So do you have a specific domain in mind? Because I'm trying to think like I like people who are like pro open inquiry so you've got a people like that and then there's some people who just do really cool work and then there are some people who i think engage with the public in a really impressive way um yeah so on that one are there any writers or i mean whatever whatever medium you want to talk about who do you who do you enjoy their public facing uh presence um I actually, I don't, I don't necessarily know if this would be for his writing, but I think uh, Jay Van Bavel does a really good job being sort of a public-facing intellectual. He's like really professional, but still friendly, and he covers all kinds of topics. So not just like academic work, but also you know problems in academia um, and in higher education in general. And I think he probably gets people to think about some challenges that they wouldn't think about otherwise um and he's but he's also really good at just getting his own work out there and making it super accessible to people um and i also think he's an academic who has sort of in my view managed to avoid becoming excessively political which can be really hard um because there's a there's like a pull to you know be like the super super liberal type who's constantly 
ranting about your political views on Twitter that actually can get you a lot of attention because people like um, super, super liberal academics. Um, and then there's the opposite end, which is like rebelling against that, which I probably maybe flirt with that line a little bit, um, which is, you know, thinking that some of the political aspects of academia are probably a problem. Um, and I think he's done a pretty good job of being in that territory and not becoming like a political activist himself. Um, and so th that's sort of impressive. Um, he's also working on a book right now. So we, we is will, he? yes, he is. Um, and I so we will, that. we will see in the, in the relatively near future, of course, the, uh, books are, are always in the, the far part of the relatively near future. Um, but, uh, yeah. Do you know what it's called? Uh, no, I don't know anything about the content of it. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, seeing that when it, when it's available. Cool. Yeah. I'm you too. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So I, we're kind of bumping up against the time here, and I want to sort of uh, finish up by changing gears a little bit and um, touching on something slightly different, which is that one of your recent papers makes an argument about tribalism and sort of how it is inherent in human nature. And um, maybe this relates to some of what we were just talking about in terms of um, really sort of polarized... Um, political opinions within academia. But anyway, so you have tribalism and part of your point is that there's no way to get around it. It's something that's going to always be present for some extent. And so how do you think that changes our strategy about how we should address social divisions in our society? And if the goal is not to eradicate tribalism, mm -hmm. but to leverage it in some point, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's that's a very applied question, which isn't quite my expertise. Um, but I do have feel free to so, speculate wildly. <laughs> okay, I can. I'm good at wild speculation. Um, my 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 colleague Bo Weingard, uh, he's the one who has written some of those papers with me, and we have another one um, that should be coming out. I don't know, in I guess a month or two. That's a Target article at Psych Inquiry, and we have lots of like cool peer commentaries coming out. Um, where we go even further into it and we like we discuss you know why tribalism likely evolved but then we say how we think that has affected the social sciences and we argue that it has caused the social sciences to kind of focus on the wrong things and sort of like push certain findings that probably aren't all that important um, and Part of the challenge of this is that we don't really have good strategies for combating these kinds of things. They're very natural. Um, and, you know, it would be weird if people didn't have these tribal tendencies. And you don't want to say that they're a bad thing because they're not necessarily a bad thing. They're good in a lot of ways. What, what we think is probably problematic is this tendency for people's tribal affiliations to affect what they believe to be true about the world. So it affects how they evaluate empirical information. It affects whether they accept certain scientific findings. Um, and that we view as problematic because it prevents uh, different political groups from being able to converge on like what is true about the world. Not necessarily what we should do about it because that's a harder question. That's um, people have different values and those are harder to navigate. But you would like to think 
we could agree on empirical reality and we cannot do that either um there really aren't great like de-biasing strategies so far as i know and in this psych inquiry paper we had a really hard time because we wanted to kind of conclude with a sort of uplifting well you know here's what we can do about it or here's some strategies that might work or you know, here are some, you know, really on like the sort of applied side, like maybe like here are, um, you know, if, if social scientists uh, want to address this problem, here's what they can do. And the truth is there just, there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of good um, data on ways we can sort of correct these things. We know things that make them like a little bit worse. So having more extreme attachments, uh, people who are more extreme seem to be more biased and ambiguity um, increases biases. So in that sense, the best solution is more information, more data. If you can, if you can get the best data and a lot of it, people are forced to <laughs> accept a truth, even if they really, really don't want it to be true. So I think that's probably the best strategy is just getting more information, which just takes time and a lot of hard work. Um, we ended up kind of cutting this section from the paper because we just couldn't think of anything good to say, <laughs> which is maybe kind of depressing. But um, I, I think, and there's there's not much legit. So we think, well, we can just get people to sort of acknowledge the fact that all groups are biased and all groups are tribal, and that includes your own group, my group, everyone's group. We all do this. Um, but you really can't get people to accept that. Um, and telling them these kinds of things doesn't seem to really change their opinions. So um, just raising awareness is not going to be enough, but I think we think that might be a fine place to start. Um and then in the meantime, I guess we just have to keep collecting data and hope that a lot of these complicated problems that people disagree on, um, one day we'll, we'll have enough information that we can answer them more conclusively. Well, the good news about that is that uh, for me, and I'm sure a number of people listening to this conversation, there is uh, plenty of room for people coming up in social psychology to make a difference. Yep. In uh, in that there's there's plenty of stuff still to figure out there, and uh, perhaps that's that's an encouraging note uh, for people who are interested in that area and 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 hope to address those kinds of problems. Very true. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so uh, people who are uh, interested in connecting more with your work can follow you on Twitter, and then of course your podcast which um, sounds like cephalopod. <laughs> yeah. Um, psych, psychphilopod. What, cyphalopod. I pronounce it cyphalopod, like cephalopod. I yeah. think you're the, the first person to have explicitly acknowledged the, the cephalopod. Uh, I thought that was fucking brilliant. So I, I like, <laughs> actually, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it originally. It was, it wasn't until I listened uh, to a little bit, like when you said it, I was like, oh my God, that sounds exactly like, that's why there's like the fucking cephalopod on your, logo. yeah, exa exactly. all right, now it's all coming together. But nobody Plus, gets it. No one yeah. ever gets it. But, but yeah, okay. no, I, but I think that that is, that's uh, because it's, it's, it's quite clever and, and, uh, and I, I appreciate it and, and, I, and I hope more <laughs> people you. are able to appreciate it. <laughs> um, but so anyway, people can connect with you on uh, those platforms. 
and um, uh, hopefully after you read uh, Jay Van Bavel's book, it'll inspire you to write your own, and people connect with yeah. you through that too in, in a few years. So, um, thanks for taking the time to talk today. It's been really fun, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing this with people. Great, thank you so much. All right, so that was our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're enjoying Cognitive Revolution, uh, it would mean a lot to me if you could follow on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you're listening through. And you can also follow me on Twitter or through my newsletter. You can uh, find me at Cody Commerce or on my website, CodyCommerce.com. So thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Thank you.